Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we thank you for gathering us all to this place. And um, we know that you love us and you desire to speak to us. And so as your children, we're ready to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that you give us hearts of anticipation, Lord. We pray that you give us hearts of eagerness to truly receive your word, Lord. Give us hearts that are good soil for your gospel today. Father, make us willing to be coaxed out of our fear by the words of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm really excited to talk about this, um, this, this message this morning. It's a, something that's real personal to me. We're going to be talking about uh, do not be anxious. It's a command that's mentioned three times here in this passage, in verse 25, in verse uh, 31, and verse 35. And it's actually the most common command in the Bible. This is the most common command in the Bible is do not be anxious in a bunch of different forms with a bunch of different words, but basically saying the same thing, that we shouldn't fear. Which means, <clears throat> as humans, we must fear a lot. <laughs> I mean, if God says this is the most common command, it must mean that we are, as a, a people, very fearful. And we do fear a lot. The, uh, the DSM, which is uh, for psychiatrists, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is largely a catalog of fears. As you thumb through it, you see fear after fear after fear, and a lot of the consequences of fear. Um, Fear was a common issue in Israel's history, right? Sinful fear kept the Israelites, almost a whole generation of them, from entering the land. And we're all somewhere on this spectrum of fear, right? Um, To near zero to constant terror, we're somewhere along this spectrum. Um, My wife is basically almost zero in fear. Uh, She doesn't worry about hardly anything. I was talking to her this week. And I was talking about worry and stuff like that. And I said, do you worry? I mean, I've known her for 27 years. Do you worry? And she's like, mm, yeah. And I'm like, that's a no. Okay? Because if you were a fearful person, you would have them immediately uh, ready. On the other end of the spectrum, a friend of mine was so plagued by anxiety for a period of her life that multiple times family and friends found her in the fetal position trembling. That was a, a medical condition. She needed to be medicated for it to get her through that. And She's good now, but she had a time there where she was just in constant terror. I myself am much more on the fearful side of the spectrum, I think, than most. Um, I wake up most mornings in fear. And a lot of times I don't even know what the fear is for. Uh, I start to kind of think through, like, why am I afraid? Why am I anxious? What is it? And it doesn't take my brain long to come up with several reasons to fear. But they weren't the real reasons, right? I woke up afraid. And and that's most mornings for me, I wake up that way. Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher in the 1800s, dealt with severe anxiety and depression throughout his life, and um, he said that some of us have an imagination that possesses a darker edge. He said, for some of us, all our birds are ravens or owls, you know, meaning that, you know, if we hear the sound of a bird, it's going to be a raven or an owl. We have kind of a, uh, a temperament that sees, he says, a tempest brewing in every calm. For, for desponding people, um, we can find a reason to fear where there is no fear. If things are calm, we assume a storm's just around the corner, right? Um, And I actually used to be far worse. There was a time in my life when, um, early in my career, when um, I started to have panic attacks. And one of them, I was at Lake Tahoe at a conference with my wife. We're up there. It's all snowy. It's nice and everything. The veterinary conference. And and I'm starting to get chest pain. (laughs) And I'm starting to get shortness of breath. And uh, for a while after this, I didn't want to talk about it because I thought I might trigger it. I hope I don't trigger any of you. Um, but I, I started to get chest pain, I started to get shortness of breath, but I didn't tell my wife. So we're up there for a few days. I don't want to ruin her trip, you know. 
uh, with my heart attack, which is what I thought I was having. And I was awfully anxious about going to the hospital. So I thought, you know what, let's just see how this rolls out, right? Later on, I realized that's a panic attack. And I, and I had those uh, for many years. Um, ulcers, too. Um, depression, which I think stemmed a lot from anxiety. You know, when you're anxious and over and over again fearful, eventually that can lead to depression. We think about the word uh, discouragement right? It's a lack of courage. You lose your courage and you become discouraged. You become depressed. And uh, when I first realized, guys, that I was really having uh, this anxiety issue that was out of control, I was reading through this book by Ed Welsh. She's a Christian counselor uh, called Running Scared. And I don't know if I even finished this book, but um, I was looking through this book and there was a section in there about like, hey, you probably think you have a fear here or there, but, you know, let's take this test and you tell me, you know, how many of these you fear. And I went through the list, and it was like almost all of them, right? <laughs> almost all of them. And I remember in a very dramatic way going into our bathroom downstairs and looking in the mirror and just saying to myself out loud, which I don't normally talk to myself like this, but I was like, what are you afraid of? And I'm looking deeply into my own eyes. It's kind of a creepy scene. <laughs> and, I, and I respond back, everything. <laughs> At that point in my life, I was afraid of everything. And um, here's a list of really common ones from this book, and they're in no particular order. You'll notice it's kind of weird. Um, heights. Check. Uh, I have my son put up our Christmas lights. We have a one-story house, okay? <laughs> and I'm like, easy up there, buddy, you know? Like, and he's like, okay, I got this. Paper cuts. Suffocation. Okay, you can see these aren't in an area of severity, right? Paper cuts and suffocation. Mice or other rodents. Snakes. Flying. Driving in bad weather. Um, the dark. Bridges. Needles. Check. Um, excessive health concerns. Yes. Insects. Baldness. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> Germs, vomiting. I haven't vomited in like 13 years. I refuse to. Um, <laughs> dentists, check. I still have my wisdom teeth. They should have gone a long time ago. I'm 42. Shouldn't have my wisdom teeth still. Drowning, crowds, okay? How many of those do you have? Um, I have a, uh, something that might help you. Um, my wife got this for me several years ago. It's a great sense of humor. This is the pop-up book of phobias. Okay, so the pop-up book of phobias. We'll start with, uh, we'll start with dentists. <laughs> See that little drill? See how the little drill moves when you open it? You got dentists. Fear of planes. I mean, if there's fire outside, you know, obviously. So you see a little mass dropping. Snakes, you know. That's cool. Um, really like this one. So this one's claustrophobia. Look, you can't open it any further than this. Isn't that cool? Um, anybody got this one? Misophobia? Look how dirty this bathroom is. Oh, the germs, right? Fear of germs. And if some of you guys have this, I won't point you out. Um, glossophobia, fear of public speaking. We're not going to talk about that for very long right now. Arachnophobia, that's nice. In your bed, of course. This is cool. This is one. This one gets me, actually. Fear of heights. And the perspective on this is super creepy. Fear of heights. And uh, <laughs> this one wasn't mentioned in the book. Very surprising. Fear of clowns, anyone? <laughs> this is always a funny one because, you know, we're like, why are our kids afraid of clowns? Well, we told them to be wary of strangers, and then the strangest of all strangers is at a party, and we're telling them, like, go up to him. It's fine. <laughs> so that's the pop-up book of phobias. Um, the thing I think that most of us worry about the most is things like money, um, success or failure, um, how our kids will turn out, their safety, their success. Um, signs of anxiety include things like physical stress, busyness. You know, some of us, the reason we're busy is because we're fearful. We're fearfully running around trying to get things done. 
being excessively driven. You know, for some people, it's fear, it's fear of failure or whatever. Anger in men, a lot of times, um, you know, we won't say that we're afraid. It sounds maybe wimpy or something like that. So we'll lash out in anger, and that anger is like 100% fear, right? It's fear. Um, overprotectiveness, I mean, we're, that we're known for that as parents this generation, right? Overprotectiveness, helicopter parent. Superstitions. You know, I grew up doing a lot of superstitions. These are all signs of anxiety, signs of fear. And anxiety is tricky because it looks like being responsible, okay? Like, so my wife, she doesn't worry about money ever. And so when there's certain things coming up and I'm worried about it, I feel like, well, if she's not going to worry about it, somebody better, right? Like, I guess I'm going to have to carry this for both of us. And the thing is, guys, is that it's nobody's responsibility to be fearful, right? In fact, the command here is don't be anxious, right? It's nobody's responsibility to be anxious. And so when we feel that fear, when we feel that worry, we feel that anxiety, that's something we need to repent of. And so we should work hard, we should plan, but then we should live under the peace of knowing that we're under our Heavenly Father's care. And, um, and what it really is about is trusting God. If you look at verse 30, he says, oh, you of little faith. What's he saying? The root of this issue is not trusting God. Not trusting God with these things, therefore I'm fearful. And so this morning, guys, no matter where you are on the spectrum, uh, of fear. This morning, Jesus wants to teach us how to fear less and trust God more. And I, I love that Jesus doesn't just say, don't be anxious. He, he could have just said, don't be anxious. Yeah, you, don't be anxious. You either, don't be anxious. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't just go like, hey, stop that. That's sin, stop it. And move on, right? What does he do? He coaxes us, right? He gives us multiple reasons. I see seven of them here in this passage. Different levels of reasons. Some are all theologically deep. Some of them just kind of practical. He gives us seven reasons. Because some of them will work for you and some won't. It's an individual thing. And so Jesus, it's as if he's coaxing a scared child out of her hiding place. Because, of course, he is. That's what he's doing with each one of us this morning. He's inviting us, guys, to worry less and trust God more. So I'm going to give you seven of them that I see here. The first one is, life is more than things. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or what you'll drink nor what you'll put on your body. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Um, this life that God has given us is more valuable than food or clothing or any of the things we worry about. Right, guys? Um, God has given us a living body. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever just sat back and thought, God gave me a living body. God gave me a body that's alive. God has given us something in our bodies that, that we can never create for ourselves, right? Even if, you know, we're starting to talk about, like, we're going to grow organs in the lab, you know, and for transplants and things like that. Super awesome, right? Organs growing in labs. It's creepy. It could be in that book. Um, even if we could grow all the body parts for a human being, there's no way that we could assemble and put the spark of life in there. There's something you've been given, the spark of life. You know, like the Frankenstein, it's alive! You know, like we can never do that. We can never give life to a living body. He's given us these amazing living bodies. They're like these amazing machines, but they're more because God's given them life. Remember when the first human being was created? God, not that you were there. Um, God created, it says he formed him out of the dust of the earth, right? He kind of like clay you know, forms this person, and then it says that he blew uh, the breath of life into his nostrils. So he takes this man, he goes, <sighs> blows life into him, and then puts his hand out, and the guy just walks off and starts talking and starts having new relationships, starts interacting with God, starts seeking him. God's given us this amazing life, these amazing living bodies. And so if he's done that, guys, he can do everything that's needed to keep him alive. 
If he gave us these amazing living bodies, he can fill them with food and cover them with clothing. We should trust him with that. Look at the second one, verse 26. Our father feeds birds. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? I love how Jesus does this. There's this big command, right? Don't be anxious. And you're like, I can't do it. I'm afraid I can't. (laughs) I can't. I can't keep this command. He goes, okay, you can't keep that command. Let's do this. Just look at something. Let me just have you look at birds. Let me have you consider lilies. Isn't that cool? He makes commands that are smaller that we can do. Okay, I guess I could look at a bird. So he says, look at these birds. He breaks it down to more doable commands. He says, look at the birds of the air. That Greek word for look means to fix your eyes on, examine, look at intently, to really look, right? The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said this, you see Jesus is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers? In this gospel, a helpless sparrow has become our theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whoever, whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. He's like, look at the birds. And, and you know what's neat to notice here, guys, is that Jesus directs us when we have psychological ills, when we have fears we can't control. Jesus directs us to look at nature. And the reason, guys, is because fear turns us inward. Isn't that true? Your fear is all about you and your needs and your things. And you, you, start, to, you just start to fold in on yourself. And the world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And, but what Jesus says is he says, stop looking inside. Stop looking at yourself. He goes, look up. Do some bird watching. You know? He says, look up. And it's amazing, guys, how the wonder of creation frees us from self-absorption. How, how much have you guys been outside? You know, how much have you really looked at the things God's made? Um, there's this article that Piper posted like 10 years ago, John Piper, and it was 10 Resolutions for Mental Health. You can find it on DesiringGod.org. And he wrote it about, he had a professor in the 70s named uh, Clive uh, Kirby. And he gave uh, in a lecture to his students these 10 resolutions. And a couple of them relate to Jesus' command, look at the birds. There's one that says, um, so Dr. Kirby uh, pleaded with us to stop seeking mental health in the mirror of self-analysis. Isn't that what we do? But instead, drink deeply of the remedies that God has for us in nature. And one of the remedies was, uh, number one, at least once a day, I shall steadily look at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet in space with wonderful, mysterious things above and below me. Isn't that healthy? You know, and consider the fact when you're staring up into the sky that you are on a sphere that's hurling through space at 67,000 miles per hour, which is Mach 86, unless that freaks you out. <laughs> and that that ball is also, our Earth is spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. I want to hold on to something, right? The sixth one is this. I shall open my eyes and ears. Every day I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person who is willing I shall not be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow the mystery of what Lewis calls the divine, magical, terrifying ecstasy of existence. You know, to just stare at nature, to lose yourself in looking at what God has made. I love the tenth one. I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic nor run by an absentee landlord, but today, this very day, some stroke is being added to a cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who is the Alpha and the Omega. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't that help you? Wouldn't that be helpful to just stare at something that God has made? So what do we find when we look at the birds? Look at verse 26. He says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns. 
Birds aren't farmers. They don't sow, they don't harvest. And they're not preppers, right? They don't gather in barns, right? And yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Um, growing up, we used to go to the zoo a whole lot, and I remember that there was an old man at the zoo, and I don't know how many times I saw him, but I think I saw him more than once because he made a real impression. The old guy with these big bags of seed, of like bird seed. And you can't do this now. I don't think you can walk around the zoo with bird seed. But you walk around the zoo with bird seed, he's dropping it all over, and the pigeons would just come. And they would just like come all around this guy, and they would land on him, you know. And he was the bird guy, you know, with the seeds. And he just loved to do this, apparently. You know, retired guy, he's just going to have pigeons fall him all around. It's a reminder of our father, isn't it? Your father is the kind of person who loves to feed birds, the little freeloaders. He loves feeding them. Guys, your father cares about you way more than birds. If, if your God feeds birds, you're going to be fine, right? Third, worry doesn't work, okay? This is one of Jesus' most practical ones. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That passage literally reads, who of you, by worrying, is able to add a span to his length? And so this question is like, is it height, which a span would be 18 inches, or is it like length of life, which would be like an hour? And because he's saying here, who of you by being, by being anxious can even do this little thing? It's probably not 18 inches, which would be quite a feat. It's probably more an hour to your life. And so what he's saying here is worry can't add an hour to your life. Probably take hours off your life, right? Jesus is saying here that worry doesn't work. And that might not be the most theological thing Jesus ever said, but it's true, right? Worry doesn't work. It doesn't help. Um, the 19th century uh, preacher Alexander McLaren said this, Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only today of its strength. Isn't that true? Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only today of its strengths. So life is more than things. He feeds birds. Worry doesn't work. And then fourth, your father dresses grass. Take a look at this. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing, and by extension, houses and shelter and all those kind of things? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not making clothes. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So this is pretty good timing, huh? I mean, here we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, and he mentions, look at the lilies of the field when we're having the super bloom, right? This is the super bloom. Those of you with allergies are very thankful for it. But this is the biggest bloom of wildflowers that we've seen in years, right? And Jesus is saying, don't worry about clothes. Your father dresses grass, right? And these wildflowers are incredible, right? I mean, the deserts are alive with them. These places that have been so barren are alive with flowers. I know some of you recently went out there and some of you are headed there. But there's these amazing flowers. All this color just blowing up, right? It's like a fireworks show, right? Because it's so brief. It, it pops up and then it's gone. And, and here as well, right? I mean, Elsinore yesterday, like people along the 15, like above 74, there was backed up traffic because people are trying to pull off to that one area. I don't know what's so special about the one particular area, but there's this one area of wildflowers, and, and the traffic was all backed up for wildflowers. It's like, what's going on? Was there a hideous accident? No, there's wildflowers, you know? Like, everybody's all, you know, pull it off to the side. It's crazy, right? It's a super bloom. Have you guys looked at them closely, though? Have you? I have some. Actually, because of my allergies, I'm going to don these gloves here while I show them to you. Hold on one second. I know I debated doing this, but I didn't want to start breaking out and sneezing like crazy. So look at these. We picked these up this morning. These are just on the side of the road. So we got this, this kind. 
I won't pass them around, probably some of you guys are. Or these purple ones. And the detail's crazy, you guys, when you look inside of them. This one has like a little mouth. It's weird, and little stripes inside. And then, and we just found these like on the way here, just on the side of the road. Check out this one. This is pretty cool, this is red, and then there's a lot of pollen in this one. This one would definitely jack me up. Um, and then we got, uh, we got another kind. Oh, this California poppy. I think it's illegal to, to actually pick these. <laughs> Realize afterwards. We're not going to be anxious about that. These purple ones are really cool, though. So, so, but if you guys really looked at them, I mean, the artistry is incredible, guys. The artistry is incredible. The intricate designs as you look in and the little pollen things, the little stripes. I mean, there's, you know, like if you're going to paint something, sometimes you just paint what people see. Like, oh, that's good. But God's like, I don't even know if anybody's going to look in here. I'm going to paint little lines in here. I'm going to make little structures. It's amazing, guys. You should look at it. And Jesus says, Solomon in all his glory didn't wear stuff that fancy and colorful. Well, one would hope not, right? That'd be kind of weird. Um, these are just grass, though, guys. God, your father dresses weeds like this. These are weeds. And he dresses them with this. And they can't last long, right? That's what some people say. You know, the pessimistic people, you know, are like, you know, you say, oh, look at all the wildflowers. Just wait. <laughs> They'll be dead tomorrow. It's like, okay, well, that's part of the point, you know? Like, and, and so it's all rocky and it's all dry and there's a scorching heat, just like in Israel, just like in the area that Jesus was preaching, right? And so a couple hot weeks and they're gone, right? If your father, guys, put so much creative energy into planning the life of grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, like, a, a, like a, um, so fleeting, it's like a fireworks show, right? If you put so much effort into that, imagine, imagine how much care and artistry your father puts into crafting every fine detail of your life. He cares about you more. And you're more enduring. Even the bad things that happen. Because I think that as you read this passage, it could kind of be like, everything's going to be fine, right? Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Even in the bad things, guys, that God is crafting every detail, even the suffering, for your good and your everlasting happiness. And it might not look like that right now. It might look like your life is just like a long stretch of desert, desert wasteland. Um, but your father, guys, in your time of suffering is sowing seeds of glory in your life. Through every suffering, he's breaking up the ground, he's seeding glory. And you know what, guys? One day, there's a super bloom coming, right? In that desert of a life you have, there's a super bloom coming in the world to come. In the world to come, we're going to stand in awe of the way the Father has crafted your life with intricate designs. Your life is not fleeting like flowers. Your life is a beautiful, eternal story of his glory. Your Father feeds, he clothes grass. He clothes grass. Fifth. You have God as your father. This is great. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly father knows you need them all. That word Gentile there, it means non-Jew, but it took on the context in the New Testament of people that don't know God are Gentiles, right? People who don't know God. And so people who don't know God, their lives, um, they live every day without God and without having the security of knowing that they have a heavenly father who cares for them. Ephesians says they live having no hope and without God in the world. So it's only reasonable in that situation to spend all your time um, seeking to meet your needs. No one else is going to take care of you. I need to seek my own needs. And Jesus reminds us, on the other hand, that we have God as Father who takes care of us. Somebody we can trust in. Uh, somebody that, that knows our needs and will care for us. 
I was reading a book a while back that was really helpful. It's called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I don't know if any of you guys have read that. But there were three big points in that book. You need to know three things, or you need to really internalize three truths to trust God. And the three truths are, you need to believe that he's good. That out of all these three, that's the one that I struggle with the most. That he's good. That everything he does is good. Everything he does is in, in the long run is commendable and good and wonderful, right? So God is good. Secondly, God is wise, okay? Because you might think he's good, but you might think, like, what's this route you're taking, God? Have you ever done that? Like, you know, what benefit could this be? We're questioning his wisdom, right? So we need to believe God is wise. And then thirdly, we need to believe God is in control. If we believe he's good, wise, and in control, then we'll trust him. And so when we're afraid, we need to cast all of our cares on our Father who cares for us. Look at chapter 7, verse 9, about the goodness of the Father. It says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him. Isn't that cool? If us, even, you know, the best of parents that you guys are and kindest of people, if you, being evil by comparison to God, give good gifts to your kids, how much more will God give us good gifts? I remember uh, Josh many years ago, um, he, he got a gift from his parents. I think, it was a, I think it was an iPod, you know, back in the day. And, um, and I remember him just being amazed by it. And he's like, he's like, man, if my parents being evil gave me this, how much more will my, will my God take care of me? And I was like, oh, that was a pretty good application, you know. It was really powerful. They're not evil. They're great. But by comparison. And so when I'm spinning anxiety, guys, I know I need to stop and I need to pray a prayer of surrender. And I'll just describe what that's like to you. When I pray a prayer of surrender, when I'm spinning in anxiety, I, I'll stop and hand over all the areas that I'm fearful about, right? You got to hand them all over. You got to name them all, right? And as you're praying, you'll find out there's more than you thought, right? And it helps if it's out loud, I really think it helps if it's out loud. I mean, some of you guys might pray really well silently. I think that's really kind of varsity prayer, you know, and most of us are more JV in our prayer. But I think praying out loud is huge. Um, I think doing it as often as you need to. I'll be driving around my truck. I'll have a fearful thought. I need to do it then, right? And, and when I hand it over, if it comes back, I need to again come to him, and I need to hand it over again. I keep handing it over to him. Because, guys, anxious thoughts can become like white noise in our minds. They can seem normal. You know, I know that when I, my heart's in, in a bad place with anxiety and I've kind of let it go for weeks and for months, it becomes like white noise. I don't even notice it. But then the more we repent of it, the more we call out to the Lord and confess it, the more it becomes something foreign. You know, it seems like a foreign invader, just like other, you know, uh, sinful thoughts might be. And so we need to pray, make a practice of, of repenting like that. Um, this is going to sound weird, but I already shared weird stuff, so I'm going to keep going. Um, sometimes when I'm really spinning anxiety, I know I need to just stop and pray a prayer of surrender. I get on my back, palms up, looking straight into the sky as a way of just saying, I'm handing everything over to you, you know, hand everything over to you. Because fears, guys, throw, they show up in packs like wolves to tear you up. They're usually not one at a time. You guys know those um, rides in, um, in, a, in a playground? I think they're only on older playgrounds. They must be dangerous. But uh, those circular things, like a roundabout, it's got little handles on it. One kid will grab on it, run around on it, and then jump on and it'll spin. But usually, like, lots of kids will hop on that thing. That's what fear is like, guys. One fear gets in my brain, grabs the handle, starts running, and then all the others are like, cool, we're taking a ride in his brain. You know, and everybody hops on, right? And so then it's spinning, right? And I'm spinning the drain, and I'm getting worse and worse. And I'm not far at that point from kind of laying the groundwork for a really nice, massive, chemical 
panic attack, <laughs> right? Um, and so what I know I need to do is I need to lay down, I lay it flat on the ground, looking up in the sky, palms up, and surrender. I say, Father, I hand over my work. I hand over all my stresses with different cases I'm working on. I hand over um, whether I'm successful at all in what I do. I hand over my, my clients' opinions of me. You know, hand over those. I hand over family issues. I hand over, you know, concerns about kids and family and things at home. Uh, hand over, you know, car problems. You know, I hand that over to you. It's your car. It'd be a shame if it just blew up, you know? I hand over bills, you know, and things that I'm worried about, and bills that I don't know if I can pay, and the ones my wife refuses to worry about. I, I hand those over, right? Um, I hand over burdens of our church family, guys. And that's not just because I'm a pastor. It's because we're in a family together. You know, Paul said that if we're members of one body, if one body member suffers, we all suffer, right? So we all here, every one of us are carrying the burdens of each other. It's part of being a body together. And so handing over those, those are really not mine. They're yours. And then a mentor of mine who went to be with the Lord this year, he said, he, he used to teach me this too. He said, at the end, pray, Father, and if I take these things back, show me. Because when we're in really bad shape, when our hearts are in really bad shape on anxiety, we don't notice that we're collecting them. We don't notice they're stop, starting to hop on the roundabout, right? And so uh, I, I just pray, Lord, if I start to take these things back, remind me, bring me back to this place of repentance. And it's through doing that over and over again. Um, verse 32 says, the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Guys, human beings are seekers. We're always trying to acquire things, right? We're, we need a reason to get up in the morning. We need a hope that keeps us going. But because we know our Father will take care of our needs, we're free to seek better things. We don't have to seek all these things. What should we seek? Point six, seek a better kingdom. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I love that Jesus gives a positive side to the command. Because it actually doesn't help you a whole lot to walk around going, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. That doesn't help, okay? That's not helpful. You need to hear that, but that's not the thing to walk around saying. But it does help a lot, guys, to say, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. He's given us the positive side of do not be anxious. Because... Um, that's what we need to hear. Guys, there is a kingdom coming, and it's already breaking into this world. You guys realize that? The kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom. And it, it broke in at first, in his first coming. It inaugurated, it started, the kingdom broke in, and it's gradually coming into this place and will be completely here and overtake this world at the second coming. It's an already not yet kingdom. It's in the process of breaking in. And when Jesus returns, he's going to renovate this entire material world when he takes his throne up in this world. Jesus will reign as king, guys, visibly, and in a way that all the inhabitants of this world will feel and know and enjoy. It will be a new world of human flourishing. They'll be building and creating and farming and exploring and inventing and designing and feasting and discovering. And the one thing there won't be, guys, is fear. It'll be a world without fear. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, guys, and when he comes to reign here on earth, all fear will vanish and never come again. There will be a day, there will be a night, when I go to bed anxious for the last time, and when I wake up, I'm going to wake up to that first dawn in the new world, and there'll be no fear. And it's going to feel awesome. <laughs> Can you imagine how awesome that will feel? To search your mind for things to worry about, and you have none. It's going to be amazing, guys. That day is coming. And so instead of seeking all the things that the world's anxious about, we can seek his kingdom, his rule, his reign. And we can be about spreading it and its triumph in the world. How do we seek the kingdom? I want to give you real quickly, it's like a message in a message. Sorry about the awkwardness of that. Um, 
how do we seek the kingdom? We, we seek the kingdom by seeking the king, right? Seek his presence continually. We seek the kingdom by praying. Your kingdom come, right? A couple weeks ago. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for that kingdom to come, right? We, we, we seek the kingdom by giving the kingdom causes. We talked about that last week. We break the power of mammon, of wealth and possessions and money in our lives. If we give it to kingdom causes. Notice that verse 24 in our passage, or verse 25, starts with the word, therefore. There's a real connection between that and anxiety. We seek the kingdom by evangelizing, guys, by giving the good news of the kingdom to people. And we have a leader development night on Monday nights, and uh, we were talking about what the gospel is. And I just felt like I need to ask these people, how many times in the last month have you shared the gospel? You know, we can sit here and debate what it is. How, how much have you shared in the last month? Ask yourself that. In the last month, how many times have I shared the gospel? Ask yourself in the last six months, how many times have I shared the gospel? In the last year, how many times have I shared the gospel? That's part of seeking the kingdom. And realize, guys, too, a little side thing, no charge, is um, you might be thinking, well, I can't share the gospel with this person. I need to get to know him better, do some good deeds for him and stuff like that. It actually gets harder to share the gospel with the people the longer you know them. We always think, well, I need to know them longer and they need to know me. It's actually, you're making it harder on yourself. Just share it as soon as you can, right? Okay, no charge for that one. Um, how else do we seek the kingdom? By living in the kingdom now. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The Sermon on the Mount is about l- learning to live under the reign of Jesus. And then sixthly, how do, we serve, how do we seek the kingdom? By serving the good of our city and our neighbors. And, and, and so you could ask yourself this. Okay, here in Menifee, if Christ brought his kingdom here, if, when, when Christ brings his kingdom here, how would it be different than it is now? And those are some of the things you need to do. And so um, just recent last few weeks, you know, one of the things we know is that when Christ's kingdom comes here fully, there will be no loneliness. So we thought about the seniors that are in our area, right? And so we started doing a senior citizen outreach on Wednesdays, 5.30, talk to chat about it. Um, but when the kingdom comes, there'll be no lonely seniors, right? And so meeting those needs is one way in which we seek the kingdom. We want to see the kingdom at Sun City Gardens. And so uh, life is more than things. He feeds birds. Worry doesn't work. He dresses grass. You have your God as Father. Seek a better kingdom. And then last but not least, seventh one, last one, you're terrible at predicting the future. Okay? You're terrible at predicting the future. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Those of us, and I can speak from experience, a bit of an expert in fear, those of us who are anxious tend to live too much in the future, don't we? And we tend to live too much in Tomorrowland, right? You think about Disneyland? We're in Tomorrowland. Except our Tomorrowland is like a heinous dystopia, okay? It's as if Disney bought the rights to Hunger Games and turned their Tomorrowland into some like dystopic, evil, terrible future world. And that's where we hang out, right? And and so we think about all the things that could go wrong and how the future is going to be a disaster and stuff. Guys, worry is a misuse of your imagination. You were not given an imagination to think about the worst case scenarios of of your future. Uh, Mark Twain, I love what he says. (laughs) Check this out. Mark Twain said this. I'm an old man, and I've known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Have you known a great many troubles and most of them never happened? It's so true. Do you guys realize that almost all of your past fears were false prophecies? Okay? If we were in the Old Testament, if you were an Old Testament prophet, we would have stoned you by now. And yet you keep listening to you. Right? 
You keep going, ooh, that's persuasive. Like, you're always wrong. You're always wrong. You're terrible at predicting the future. And so instead of our, using our imaginations for that, guys, let's train our imaginations to imagine what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes and imagine what it would be like to live our lives in the kingdom now. That's why we've been given an imagination. We need to live, guys, in the kingdom in the present. That will keep your mind plenty busy, <laughs> applying the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount and seeking to live in the kingdom now. Well, what about when trouble comes? You know? What about when bad things do happen? The end of that verse, verse 34, it says, each day has its own trouble. That word for trouble is the word evil. Each day has its own evil. Each day it has its own trouble. I want to say to you guys that our freedom from anxiety doesn't come from being guaranteed a trouble-free, evil-free life. Right? That's not where the freedom from anxiety comes from. Is a guarantee that, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. No. Our freedom from anxiety comes from knowing that even when trouble comes, it comes from the heart of our Father who is good and wise and loves us more than we can imagine. That's where freedom from anxiety comes from, is knowing that whatever evil does come, whatever hardships do come, come by the sovereign plan of a God who loves us, who's good and wise and loves us more than we can imagine. How do we know he loves us? Look at Romans 8.32 for that. Romans 8.32 says this. He, talking about the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? What's he saying? He's saying, like, God's not stingy. If he was stingy, the best thing, the easiest way out would be to not give you his son, right? I'm not giving you guys my son, right? I, do, I, like, I really love you guys. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't give you my son. He loves you so much, he gave his own son for you. And so it shows that he's not stingy. He says, how will he not also graciously give you all things? He's going to give you anything that's actually good for you. And sometimes that's things that we can tell are good for us. And sometimes that's him sowing those seeds in our suffering for the super bloom, right? Um, in Germany, in central Germany, uh, in the terrible years after World War II, there was a pastor named Helmut, I love that name, Helmut Thelek, Helmut Thelek, a pastor. He was preaching a sermon uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, the same passage um, in St. Mark's Church. And in his sermons, you can see his sermons, you see he talked a lot about things like the air raid sirens they dealt with, you know? Um, the bombs, the explosions, the screams amidst rubble. And you can imagine, guys, in, in, with that kind of a backdrop, that Jesus' words about, like, look at the birds, look at the lilies. You might think that sounds hollow, right, when you're in the middle of a city that's in rubble. But here's what Pastor uh, Thalek said. He said this, Nevertheless, I think we should stop and listen to this man, Jesus. Nevertheless, I think we should stop and listen to this man whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like when he points us to being carefree as birds and lilies. Were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over him at this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? What's he saying? Jesus knew fear and dread. <laughs> you know, when Jesus gives these words, he is a man who knows fear and dread. Jesus Christ, guys, came to take away the only fear that should really melt our souls. In one passage, he said this. He said, I tell you the truth, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and afterwards can do nothing to you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after killing you has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, fear him. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ, there's something you should be afraid of. Very afraid. God. <laughs> you should be afraid of God. You should be afraid of the creator and sustainer of this world 
whom you sin against and who will judge you eternally. That would be a very reasonable fear to have. The good news, guys, is that Jesus came to take that fear away. Jesus came to receive the judgment you deserve in your place on the cross. Jesus lived his whole life, guys, as a countdown to the cross. Can you imagine what that was like? To live his whole life knowing? You, you hear him talking about it over and over again. My hour hasn't come yet. My hour hasn't. He's thinking about that hour, right? Jesus lived his whole life on death row. He knew what was coming. In Luke 12, he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Speaking of his death. In, Luke, in John 12, he says, And now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come into the world. And then John 13, they're having Passover dinner, and Jesus became troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, speaking of Judas. And then later that night, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Luke 22 says that he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, guys, was in abject terror. Why? Because Jesus wasn't going to die a normal life. A lot of people go to death, and they go to death singing, right? He wasn't going to die a normal life. He wasn't even going to die a normal crucifixion death, Right? Which would be even worse. He's not going to die a normal crucifixion death. Jesus was going to be crushed under the holy anger of God. The, the anger that we deserve for our sins. That's what he's talking about when he says, take this cup from me. The cup was an image throughout the Old Testament prophets of God's wrath. And the idea was is that our sins create a, a store of wrath, a store of punishment, a cup that's filling up. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying as he's looking at the cup, the cross was about physical pain, but it was about a spiritual uh, suffering um, as he drank that full cup of God's wrath, the cup of trembling. Guys, on the cross, Jesus Christ drank the cup of trembling so you could have a fearless future. Isn't that awesome? That, that world to come, that fearless place, that had to be purchased for us because we're sinners. And he did it by taking the cup of trembling. So as we take communion... Um, during the next song, let's think about how, let's do it as people who have our worst problem solved, right? Our worst problem is solved, our problem of sin. And so as you come up and you take the bread, it's gluten-free, so don't worry about that. As you take the bread and take the cup, we want to remember what they symbolize. The bread symbolizes his body broken for you. And as you're taking that bread and as you're crushing it with your teeth and chewing that bread, I want you to remember that the full weight of God's judgment um, was executed upon your sin in his body. And as that bread kind of melts away in your mouth, you know, a small piece of bread, it kind of melts, kind of dissolves. I want that to let your guilt and your shame do the same. It's finished, guys. And when you drink that cup and you drink it dry, and I always try and drink it like to where there's nothing left in it because it's a great symbol that, that Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's judgment dry for you. There's nothing for you there. There's no suffering there's no uh, judgment for you. He drank it dry on the cross. He drank the cup of trembling so you could have the cup of blessing. And also when we take communion, I want you to think about just like, just like food and, and drink nourish our bodies. Let's pray, guys, as we take it, that the spirit would nourish us on the presence of Jesus, that it would be true spiritual food to us. Let's pray. Father, we're... Uh, I'm reminded of the passage where you said in Luke 12 where you said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
And we just pray, Lord, as we take communion, that we would really see it as an appetizer of the great kingdom feast coming when you come and reign here and make things new. Father, we pray that it's a reminder of your death, the death of your son and his shed blood to take away all our sins. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here with uncertainty. No one would leave here with uncertainty about whether they have truly been forgiven. That the judgment that they deserve has truly passed. Lord, we thank you that our judgment day already happened 2,000 years ago. Father, we thank you that on the cross, our judgment day already occurred, and the verdict for us is not guilty, is righteous, it is finished. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place with that joy, and that that joy would just overshadow and and cover and remove all the other fears we have in our lives, Lord. I thank you for being our Father, a Father who gives good gifts, a Father that's so good that he makes every earthly father look evil. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.